Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Bill. And this is our 15th episode. Woo! And what we're going to do over the course of this episode, as with every episode, is give you the sense of what it's like to be out on the trail, in the woods, and in the field. We pick a natural history topic, do research, and then share with you everything we've learned. And for this episode, what did we decide to look into, Steve? Hiking in the rain. <laughs> no, we're looking at the subnivian zone, though we are hiking in the rain. So it's been raining all day here, even though uh, it is January. Uh, I would say temps right now are upper 30s, low 40s, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think, I think my car said it was like 41. Yeah, so there's very, very little snow cover left. We are actually, we're at Chestnut Ridge Park, which is a county park west, or, sorry, east of Buffalo. And we're in an area of the park that's referred to as uh, Shell Creek. Or some people call it the Eternal Flame, right? Yep, this is the Eternal Flame Falls. So, and we'll be walking down Trail uh, Shale Creek to get there. Do we want to talk about the person who made this area well-known? Sure. Probably about, geez, about 20 years ago now. A fellow by the name of Bruce Kirshner, who some people may know. He did a lot of work with old-growth forests throughout New York State and in the Northeast. Uh, but he published a book, The Secret Places of Western New York. That's right. Uh, and about 15 years ago, I believe my dad bought that book. I could be wrong about 15 years, but when we were just children and we started visiting every place on it. But that's also when places started blowing up in terms of traffic, right? <laughs> that is true. I actually have some friends in the uh, environmental education realm who weren't happy when Bruce published that book. Because <laughs> they said, oh, some of our favorite places now are overrun with people. But the Eternal Flame, it's a spot where behind a waterfall on Shale Creek, there's a, a natural gas leak. If you come here on almost any evening, the flame is lit or you can even light it yourself. Mm -hmm. Which does sound kind of dangerous, but people have been doing it for years. Yeah, the falls has not exploded yet. No. So I think that's a good sign. <laughs> not yet. But as you said, we are here for this episode to talk about the subnivian zone and why don't you give people an idea of what that is so like bill said it's called the subnivian zone but people also call it the subnivian space the subnivian environment or simply and this is the one that was actually in in one of the bigger papers i read the subnivium oh, did you read that i did not the subnivium i think i may end up saying that from time to time just just to mess with you <laughs> and what all these terms refer to is just the open shallow layer that usually forms under deep layered snow Right. It's a thermally stable and predictable seasonal refugium between the ground and the bottom of the snowpack. I love that word. Refugium. <laughs> refugium. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't just include the, the snow and the, you know, the area between the snow and the ground. It also includes areas within and under logs and also rocks and other debris that intercept snowfall. Sure. So anything that animals can get under, but the snow makes up the vast majority of it. I found two ways that this can form. So the first is when vegetation, leaf debris, or, or trunks and branches physically hold the the snow up and that creates an open space that can be used by a lot of small mammals and insects other yep. creatures or it can also be created as the snow is warmed by the ground and i remember i still remember learning about this in high school and for some reason it just stuck with me sublimation yes yeah so that's when ice turns directly into water vapor so when so you could say just to just to make it more simplified it's when a solid becomes a gas yeah it skips the water phase and in this case or, it's, sorry it skips the liquid phase. <laughs> Not everything has a water phase, mind you. <laughs> you know, this uh, brick turned into water. Good catch. <laughs> so in this case, it's when the snow is worn by the ground and sublimates into water vapor, moves up through the snowpack. Yeah. So this sublimation changes the lowest snow layer into small ice particles that then act as an insulating roof. And you get larger and larger ice particles as you move up. 
and you also get the temperature decreasing more and more as you move up through the snow. Pit. Right. I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize is that word refugium is a perfect word because underneath the snow, these animals have this humid winter habitat yeah. with relatively stable temperatures that are right around 32 degrees, which may seem cold, but in a lot of temperate and northern climates where winter temperatures drop well below freezing, down there under the snow, you have these critters, these plants, these insects hanging out where it's a balmy 32 degrees. And, and one thing that we haven't said yet is that the insulation of the snowpack varies with snowpack depth, duration, and density. Mm -hmm. So there's positive correlations with depth and duration. So I guess the deeper the depth of the snow and the longer the snow stays around, the better of an insulator it is. Okay. But with density of the snow, the more dense it is, the worse of an insulator it is. Really? Yes. Uh, I actually have a, a little rough number. So it's a little bit more than one and a half feet of snowpack depth. The temperature stays around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but anything below that depth of snow, it starts losing it, its insulative properties. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But what about the density? Okay, uh, so uh, I think there's a material that they use on space shuttles. They, it's like a, not a very dense material. Have you ever seen it? It's like cubes and they can run blow torches through them. Okay. They're very, very light, but they don't catch on fire. They Like you can even hold the other side of the cube. Aren't they like while, ceramic or something? Yeah, it's something like ceramic, but like it has a lot of air spaces, air gaps in it. Okay. And I think that's what it is. I think the denser the snow is, the less air gaps it, there are, and the more easily heat can be transferred into the snow. Or right. sorry, sorry, heat can be taken away from away the snow. Away from the snow. Because, yeah, if you, you know just what, have though? an unbreaking layer of snow... Um, the heat, sorry, un if you have an unbroken <laughs> layer of, of ice, the heat can be taken out of it easier than if it's got a lot of air gaps in it. I think I have a good analogy. Sure. Even though I, I feel I have a very poor grasp on this concept at the moment. But like a down jacket. Okay. I was going to say like deer fur or deer hair. Deer hair, yeah. Deer hair, is, it's a lot of hollow. But uh, the, like a strand. down jacket, yeah. you have all that puffiness to it. That's right. my scientific term. Puffiness. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be more insulative than something that's not quite so puffy. Yeah. All right, so... Can I talk about what type of animals live there, or do you have more? You know, I just want to say one thing. We may, we don't even have to keep this in necessarily, but I thought it was kind of an interesting point. So um, I, I did also a little bit of research on, on just winter research in general. And despite the northeastern region of the United States and the southeastern region of Canada having between about 100 and 150 days where the air temperature is below freezing, there is relatively little research that, that happens during that part of the year. Yeah. And historically, it's been overlooked, and I think part of the reason is because people consider this the quote-unquote dormant season for many plants and animals. But when we use the term dormant season as a general description for winter, it can be a bit misleading. Because uh, while there is a decline in activity, there's actually a lot more activity than people like to think. So recent studies have demonstrated the importance of winter conditions on ecological processes. Uh, but to be fair, the cold temperatures and snow cover actually makes sampling during the winter pretty difficult. In terms of like um, <laughs> academia, winter's a really hard time to get things done in terms of having faculty and staff around and students in town sure. and all that. It's just, it's just not a good time. <laughs> and so much research comes out of universities and, and colleges and whatnot. Well, so, yeah, summer's yeah. the research season, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the field season. So I was just talking about that there's more activity than a lot of people think during the winter. And the production during winter can significantly contribute to the nutrient budgets for that upcoming year. So here's just a couple examples. Photosynthesis, that's occurring in conifer trees even down to 21 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's still happening even below freezing. Root growth, it's happening, you know... Wait, uh, wait, photosynthesis is occurring below freezing? Yes. Really? 
a lot of these things happen below freezing. It must be slowed uh, way down, though. Right. Yeah. Uh, root growth, it actually it stops between 41 and 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But it's soil and roots, so if you have that, yeah. sub, you know, if you have that subnivian zone, you're it's you're probably golden, right? yeah. Um, you also have soil microbial activity that's still happening. Soil respiration still happening. Parts of the uh, very important parts of the nitrogen cycle are still happening. Uh, nitrogen mineralization and nitrification. And then there's still extracellular enzyme activity happening, even as low <laughs> as negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a lot of stuff going on. We are sticking to Fahrenheit, right? Yeah, I, I'm only talking about Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I love this, though, because it seems like we've come across similar but not the same studies. Because mm -hmm. I found a 2015 paper called Cold Truths, How Winter Drives Responses of Terrestrial Organisms. In that, it basically talked about how winter is so often overlooked and especially when it comes to climate change research, because it just tends to focus on performance in the growing season. Yeah. But climate change has a huge modifying influence on winter conditions, right? Right. In fact, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, they're actually saying that climate change may have the biggest effect during winter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this paper also talks about how winter conditions vary geographically more than summer conditions. Mm -hmm. And they gave a great example here that... You know, I hadn't ever really thought about, but they said, for example, the extreme maximum temperatures recorded in Montreal, Quebec, and Miami, Florida, were, oh shoot, I only have Celsius here. What is it? What's the degrees? 36.1 degrees Celsius. Oh, That's... <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Okay. Well, we can't have that in there. No. The extreme maximum temperature recorded in Montreal is 36.1 degrees Celsius, and then in Miami, Florida... It's 36.7 degrees Celsius. So in summer, there's only a, a very small, less than one degree difference in the maximum temperature. Right. Right? But their extreme minimum temperatures at these locations, so during winter, the difference goes from 37, negative 37.8 degrees Celsius in Montreal to negative 1.1 degrees Celsius. Oh, yeah. So that's a huge difference. Yeah, it's yeah. those minimum temperatures seem like they could be the most important part. Yeah, and it yeah. said those winter temperatures, that what what's often constraining distributions of different species. Oh, yeah. Many, many species, there's just a physiological limit. Yeah. And so it's really, really going to either reduce or eliminate their range in areas where they just can't handle cold like that. Yeah. Especially... As we're going to get to, because uh, at least I talk about climate change a good deal in my research, and it's not looking great for the <laughs> for the upcoming century in terms of the subnivian zone. No. And the subnivian zone, like we were just saying, it's it's really important in terms of its insulating properties. It's really important for mammals, insects, amphibians, yeah. it's really... uh, reptiles. It's so important that without the subnivian uh, layer, which I know this is just anecdotal, but... Just in the last five years or so, I, it's just I feel like there's less and less snow <laughs> during oh, our winters. Definitely, last winter, yeah. at least here in western New York, there was very little extended snow cover. The year before that, we had a lot, but that was uh, an abnormal year. So as long as we're just briefly talking about climate change, I do want to add a couple more things in before we move on to anything about animals or plants or soil microbes or anything like that. So even during the last 30 years, there has been a decrease in snow cover. And just, <laughs> all right, get this. So there's been a decrease in snow cover of 800,000 kilometers squared per decade. Wow. So every decade, every 10 years, we're losing about you know 0.8 million <laughs> uh, kilometers squared of snow. Uh, of snow cover, I should say. 
And between 1951 and 2012, global mean temperatures have increased by 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not giving the the error or anything like that, but there there is a significant increase, and it's been correlating with declines in snow depth and cover extent in North America. Yeah. And it's, when we're talking about North America, or when we're talking about the Subnivian Zone, we're really only thinking about the Northern Hemisphere, because I think that's where like 98% of snow cover really happens. Oh, okay. I'm pretty positive of that. I think I, yeah. I think I got that number off of one of my papers. But... Um, but so North America is a really, really good place to talk about. Well, there's, there's a lot yeah. of ocean down there in the southern hemisphere. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. But I just want to go back to a minute just to just to reinforce that image of the subnivian zone. This right. this layer under the snow that's really this whole winter world of interactions that we don't see. Yes. But there's tons of organisms down there that really their winter survival depends on this layer. Right. They, it seems like they're doing pretty well in the subnivian zone. Yeah. Just imagine someday you just don't have your house yeah. and nowhere else to live. <laughs> that would be really rough on you, especially during the winter time. For about half of the year, you <laughs> yeah. know, depending on where you are. And especially if it's raining instead of snowing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Makes it even worse. Yeah. But Steve and I were both saying before we turned on the mic that it's actually kind of astounding how limited the research into the subnivian zone is. Yeah. You know, you made the point that there's barely any mention of it, even on Wikipedia. Oh, there was, I think there was three references, and one of them I searched for like 30 minutes, and I could not locate <laughs> that reference. So for all you know, it was just made up on the spot. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but there was a certain point in my research where, where I actually questioned, is this really a thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had to question it myself, because a big portion of my life I've heard about this thing called the Subnivian Zone, but for all I knew, it was like an outdated term or something. Right? I was like, come on, it's a whole environment. How can it be outdated? So it is a little scant on Wikipedia, which we <laughs> as a jumping off point so it wasn't really much help there but even on google scholar it was yeah. it was sort of tough I, I was lucky enough to find a web page that directed me to a specific author's page on google scholar and i was able to find a few papers that way and yeah. but that, it wasn't easy it was useful but it wasn't easy yeah. i had to kind of go sort of a roundabout way to get this stuff one thing that i was happy to find it was actually a kids tv show oh <laughs> i've seen is it like a little cartoon thing no no this, so, the Wild Kratts, do you know about the Kratt Brothers? Oh, I, I did an episode with Matt a long time ago with In Defense of Plants. I don't recommend listening to that episode, because <laughs> it's one of the earliest ones, and we're not th- that great with podcasts yet, but that's one of the things I watched to prepare. <laughs> the Wild Kratts episode? Yeah, yeah, I did watch it, yeah. So, it is, it's this great kids TV show where it's about wildlife, plants, and animals, and I've actually been very impressed watching it with my daughter. They have some solid information in there. There's some <laughs> solid science, yeah. and they did a whole episode on the subnivian zone. Yeah. I was very happy to see that. All right, so can I talk about what animals live there yet? Or? I don't know, man. <laughs> Wait, I, I do want to say just a, just a couple more things before that. Okay. Oh, and this actually does get into the animal thing a little bit. The, the last few stats I gave were talking about specifically North America, and I think I was actually talking about specifically the northeastern part of North America. Well, that area, our area in general, Bill and I from western New York, we should be seeing a 10 to 30% increase in precipitation as well as an increase in um, storm intensity and droughts as well. Due to climate change. Due to climate change, right. And uh, these changing snowfall regimes and reduced ice cover on the lakes are going to give us increased lake effect snow in coastal areas. So that's, of course, and so notice that I said lake effect snow in coastal areas. Yeah. Because even with the increased snowfall, snowpack is projected to decrease due to thawing, you know, these yeah. freeze-thaw cycles, 
rain and sleet. So we'll get a bunch of snow, but it's going to melt quickly. Yeah, it, we're projected to get these fluctuations of snow and melt and snow and melt and snow and melt. So it's just teasing all those animals. Right. And and a lot of snow. Nope, yeah. take it away. <laughs> and without this insulating snow early in the season, soil is more likely to freeze and stay frozen even after there is a substantial snowpack on the ground. Uh. So the problem comes in the beginning and the end of the winter season. That's when you're going to get the biggest effects, and that's where you're going to see the most, I guess, quote-unquote, damage being done to this ecosystem. Wow. Yeah. That's depressing. Right. Thanks, and, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and one more thing, and I think this, is, this may end up being a general theme throughout the episode. If Bill doesn't talk about it, I'm sure I'll just throw it in every now and then, just to remind you guys. <laughs> but as ambient air temperatures increase, you're going to get a reduced snow depth, and the snow cover is likely to result in colder soil temperatures and increased freeze-thaw cycles. And this is, this is a really interesting point. The warmer the air becomes, the colder the subnivian zone and soil temperatures will become. Uh, Isn't that kind of interesting? That's it's almost like... The, counterintuitive. It's, right. It's because you need a certain low temperature to keep the snowpack there in the first place. And if you don't have it, you're not going to have the insulative property. Yeah, your insulation's gone. Right. Yeah. yeah. You need that snowpack for that property to appear. Uh -huh. So, okay. I just, I just really wanted to say that... Oh, sorry. One more thing. <laughs> Frozen soil is also a big problem because frozen soil is relatively impermeable to water. So think concrete. Yeah. And so when we, this actually is going to be changing water runoff patterns. So water is basically going to bypass soil and it's going to bypass any of its groundwater paths. So flooding is going to be more likely due to this frozen soil and this quote-unquote rain-on-snow events. Yeah. So we're, so we're going to get sort of a more drought condition in the soil because the water is bypassing it. Yeah. And you're going to get floods <laughs> in, in, in areas with, you know, now that we have, we will be having increased rainfall, decreased snowfall, I think it's even, and increased soil freezing. It's even more disturbing that you're laughing about it. I know. <laughs> well, if I don't laugh, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> All right, we can move on to animals now. All right. But, uh, just to repeat it one more time, the beautiful paradox of warmer air means colder soil. Yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> and, it, and what we're talking about here, this, this subnivian zone, it's going to become increasingly rare. Yeah. All right. So this whole refugium that we've talked about so far, there's a variety of animals that live in and depend on it for winter survival. Most common are small mammals, so things like mice and voles. And they spend most of their winter there eating plants, seeds, bark from bushes, and shrubs. Sometimes they're going to cache, you know, store up small amounts of food to ensure a steady supply. And they are active throughout the winter, so it's not like they're hibernating down there. Oh, I, I do want to say one thing. In the northeast United States, um, we have something called the seven sleepers up here. We touched on it with the bear hibernation episode. Yeah, hibernating mammals that hibernate to different degrees. Right, and there's seven groups of animals, but overall it's about 15 species because we have yeah. eight bats and two jumping mice. But besides those 15 species, we have 36 mammals that remain active all winter long. Yeah. So, like, like I was saying more before, common. yeah, like I was saying before, Winter is pretty active yeah. still. The minority of animals are really the ones that hibernate. It's not or, like those silly plants. Away. Yeah. <laughs> plants are like, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, there's a lot of plants that actually uh, overwinter as seeds or roots, more or less, <laughs> <Right>. the rootstock. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, the mice and the voles, I'm sure you've seen it, Steve. During the spring, if we've had a long enough snow cover, and I'm curious to see if the listeners out here will have seen it before, when you get that spring thaw, you'll see these patterns of tunnels in the snow. As the, the snow melts down and gets close to the ground, you'll see what looks like a whole network. And that mm -hmm. is what's left of the subnivian zone. 
Yeah. So the mice, the voles, the other critters use those tunnels, and those entrance holes where those tunnels emerge from the subnivian zone, those do provide ventilation. Uh, so they allow the carbon dioxide created from animal respiration as well as carbon dioxide released from the ground to escape. So that's all, all part of the subnivian zone. Right, and that CO2 is being produced by roots and microorganisms oh, yeah. and ev everything, yeah. Fungi so and whatnot. I want to talk a little bit about the different moles and the voles that live down there. Okay. Because I find that a lot of people aren't aware of voles or what they are. Sure. So I think that's good to talk about. So The only reason I know anything about voles is because I spent a semester bird banding short-eared owls and dissecting owl pellets to see what their diets were and there was a lot of voles in there there was a uh, shrews and voles you handled a lot of uh, vole skeletons yep yeah the way you tell them apart is from uh, one of their molars oh really yeah. mm -hmm. oh interesting i actually got a bird band once too yeah and uh and chuck the guy who i was working for at the time he won an award for it really yeah because when you get the bird band you put it into the system, and yeah. they're like, hey, you got one of them, you know, so oh. they know a little bit more about the bird's life. I thought you meant he won, like, a scientific award for, you know... He owes me a million dollars. All right, so uh, let's talk about moles. Do you know what the word fossorial means? No, I don't think so. Lives largely underground. Okay. So, yeah, the moles we're talking about live... They're fossorial, live largely underground. Do you know moles have no external ears? I had no idea. I didn't know that either, but uh, according to the research I did... Yeah. I've seen one mole my entire life, and we were over at Iroquois, and it was a star-nosed mole, and oh. it was just dead on the path. <laughs> Those are creepy looking, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it was still really cool, because I've never seen a mole before, and then there's just this mole perfect condition. I mean, it was dead, but yeah. to us, it didn't look like there was anything wrong with it, and uh, it was just dead on the path. Something happened, obviously. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Steve mentioned the star-nosed mole. Those are the ones... These guys are, you know, about five inches long or so, five or six inches long, and they have finger-like projections, really like tentacles coming out yeah. around their nose. Yeah, think of that guy from the Pirates of the Caribbean. No, I'd rather <laughs> not. <laughs> that, that was a really good movie, Bill. <laughs> Let's... Moving on. <laughs> Here in, in New York, there's about three different kinds of, of moles you're going to find down in the, uh, the subnivian zone. Star-nosed mole is one... One last thing about that species. Did you know that their tail, one way you can ID them, besides their, their freaky nose, sure. is um, their tail constricts near their body? Oh, really? So it's almost like this, this paddle-shaped tail where it's pointed at the end, gets wider, and then it constricts. I'll have to look at because we took some pictures of it. Because, you know, I've never seen a, vol or, or a mole before, so I wanted to take a few pictures. Yeah. I wonder if I got any pics of the tail. Well, if moles typically have um, short tails, the star-nosed mole being an exception with the long tail. Uh, as we said, no ear ears that you can see, and then very, very small eyes. But the voles, they are mouse-like small rodents, these stocky bodies, short legs, but their eyes are really small and their ears are partially hidden. And these guys are semi-fossorial. So, Semi-ground dwellers. Yeah, that's right, yeah. exactly. And usually what we're going to see around here are meadow voles. If you're out walking around your lawn and you see some small furry animal kind of leaping, running away from you, chances are pretty good it, it's probably a vole. And the crazy thing is, during the wintertime, these guys rarely see the sun. They create a web of tunnels down in the subnivian zone where they have their food. And very often in the subnivian zone, they'll kind of gather together for warmth, sometimes up to six at a time. Oh, wow. Uh, sharing their body heat. But that is one behavior that also does tend to make them easy prey uh, for predators. They're a six-pack. <laughs> nice. <laughs> six-pack of nuggets. I can't believe I didn't even think. <laughs> I'm going out for nuggets. Yeah. And the weasel dives down the hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
You know what an ermine is, right? An ermine, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could describe it in any meaningful way. <laughs> well, you know what it is. It's a weasel. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. So some people refer to it as the short tail weasel. It's the smallest weasel we're going to find in New York State. So just to give people an idea, it's about 9 to 12 inches in length. And a lot of that is its tail. But the thing only weighs about 2 to 4 ounces. Oh, holy cow. So it's cow. this long, narrow critter, but uh, it has a slender body and neck. And they go through the subnivian zone, through these tunnels, just hunting down voles, moles, mice, whatever they can find. It's a good place to look. And I should say that the moles are part of the order insectivora. So obviously they feed chiefly on insects. Whereas the the voles are mostly herbivores. So they're feeding mostly on seeds, bark, and stuff like that. So you just said, so the shrews are insectivorous and the voles are herbivorous. The moles are Insective, insective, and so are shrews. And I shrews, say. yeah, yeah. So those are the other kinds of small mammals down there. Mm-hmm. And also, one more thing about uh, about mammals. Uh, amazingly, and this isn't something that I really think about down here in Western New York, but um, lemmings. Some lemmings reproduce during the winter. Really? So they're really active. Yeah. Okay, well, I know... That's something slightly more north, right? We don't have lemmings here. No, not here. Yeah. A but little we, north. We have mice that reproduce during the wintertime. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not unheard of. So, um... These weasels, they'll go down in the subnivian zone and just kind of clean up, and sometimes they'll even take over the tunnels and, and use them as a winter den. You'll also get some of the larger weasels down there, like the fisher, and then also the, the martin. So some people call it the American martin or the pine martin. Mm. And then, believe it or not, red squirrels are down there a lot, too. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. but They're they, pretty small, right? They are pretty small, yeah, yeah and, but they'll use uh, the subnivian zone pretty extensively as well. And then the last one I'll mention, the last, if you want to call it animal, Sure. Is the the snow flea. Oh, okay. So uh, they have a... Have if you even want to call it an animal. Well, you know, some people, for some reason, they don't include insects as animals. I don't sure, know why, sure. though. But not, obviously, anyone in our audience, probably. Right? <laughs> yeah. You just offended a lot of people. <laughs> uh, we'll have to cut that out then. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> All right. So predation in the subnivian zone, it can occur in two ways. So I already mentioned how uh, the ermine, the short-tailed weasel, they'll go down into the tunnels... So some of the larger predators that can't get down into the subnivian zone, they have a keen enough sense of hearing that they can actually hear the activities of the animals that are down there. So who are some of the animals that you think could hear animals moving in the subnivian zone? My only guess would be red foxes, yep. owls. Yep. That's two guesses. Do hawks go in? Well, I didn't find any information on yeah, hawks. I, I know owls and I know foxes. Because you see those videos of the foxes pouncing through the top of the snow. Exactly. And then you also see the wing marks on the snow. The beautiful, like, yeah. it's almost like they're doing a stamp or something <laughs> down <laughs> on the snow. So you were right. Foxes, owls, and then also wolves and coyotes Okay. have been known to punch down through the snow to get at the animals that they know are moving around down in the subnivian zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, now I have a couple of studies, well, uh, but I, I I've been talking to, for a while. Though. I wanted to bring up one thing about the invertebrates. Yeah. So you had brought up springtails, but I also wanted to mention that it's not just springtails that stay active. Snow fleas, um, also known as. Also known as snow fleas, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also mites and ticks, spiders and true flies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them stay pretty active during the winter. Uh, a lot of them are within the subnivian zone, but species like snow fleas and whatnot sometimes. And we'll even see flies from time to time on top of the snow. Sure. We I should d- say, just to cover ourselves, Yeah. we're not going to talk about all of the organisms that you might find out. <laughs> definitely not, definitely not. One thing that I did want to say, just to kind of bring it back to climate change, because I, I kind of keep wanting to bring it back that way, we already have predicted that we're going to see a decrease in the snowpack, and that's going to be 
pretty detrimental to a lot of the species that Bill just talked about. But it's not detrimental to every species. What I'm talking about are like white-tailed deer or even moose. With decreased snowpack, you're actually going to have more of the lower branches and the smaller shrubs. They're going to be more exposed to herbivory. And so they could be increasing their population with an increased food because it's not it's not hidden under the snow anymore. Yeah. With these lower branches and smaller shrubs exposed, they'll have plenty of food to eat, but this may eventually increase unpalatable vegetation because uh, the moose and the deer are eating so much of the vegetation that would otherwise be covered and, you know, will make it so those plant species can be more healthy and reproduce better and all that. So now that all of their food is out in the open, they're going to be eating all of their food. So their <laughs> numbers are going to go up, the branches and the, and the shrubs that they're eating, those populations are going to decline. So it, it may we may see a change in understory assembly. Worse, with, than, with worse than we already have? Worse than we already have. <laughs> oh, <yeah>, God. Because, <laughs> because the winter won't be there, or the snowpack won't be there as much to protect yeah. protect uh, the oh, small man. shrubs and everything. Wow. All right, so can I talk about one of my studies or you have more? One thing that I did want to add in is that um, you were just talking about mammals and, and other animals that survive in the subnivian zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have here that species that overwinter in surface soils, like insects, amphibians, some reptiles, and some mammals, they may become inactive or they may actually just die without the protection of the insulating snow. And this is, again, talking about the effects that global warming would have. And along that same line, the lower temperatures within the remaining subnivian zones, as well as these increased freeze-thaw events, may be greater than their physiology can handle. So uh, predicting the changes in these animals' distributions in the future is actually going to be pretty difficult because, because we don't know whether or not some of these animals are flexible enough to move out of these zones. So one thing that I'll talk about in a little bit after Bill talks about his study is the difference between coniferous forests, deciduous forests, and open areas like prairies in terms of the, the effect that global warming may have on the subnivian zones and those habitats. But the takeaway of that study is that deciduous habitats are more likely to suffer more. You may see a decrease in the subnivian zone in those areas more than the others. And so uh, some researchers have made predictions saying that some of these species if they can, if they're capable of shifting away from deciduous habitats into warmer and more stable subnivian zones, will do so. So species that are less flexible may actually see just simply a restriction in their ranges. Because if they can't move into a new habitat, Where they're, they gonna just, go? they're just going to die. You right. Know? All right, so can I talk about my study now? Yeah, yeah. So we, we could talk about your study, but I, I definitely wanted to tie the, the animal stuff in with, uh, with global warming. Do you want to do now? No, go ahead. Okay. I want to talk about a study I found from 2006. This was in behavioral ecology and sociobiology. And this looked at something called Zeitgeber. Do you know that word? No? It sounds a lot like Zeitgeist. It does, it does. <laughs> so I should have looked into what Zeit means. What is Zeitgeist? Um, what does it mean? Like the, the I don't want to say and, sound, and be wrong. <laughs> That's fine. And pretend I never asked. <laughs> uh, so a Zeitgeber is any external or environmental cue that synchronizes an organism's biological rhythms to the Earth's 24-hour light and dark cycle. Okay. So animals living in the subnivian zone, there's really no light down there. So it's, it's really blocked out by all the snow. So this research looked into what's the benefit of maintaining these cycles. And what they found out, if you think about it, the animals are going to come out of the subnivian zone now and then. They're going to emerge for whatever reason. And they found that voles in the study typically do it together. And they said, well, this seems to make sense because if you're all coming out at once, it's going to reduce predation risk. 
And also if underneath the subnavian zone, if you're all kind of moving around at the same time, it's going to increase the amount of times that these animals kind of run into each other at the edges of their territories. So if they're out running the perimeter of their territory at the same time, they're going into each other, and they'll be able to say, oh, that's your territory, this is my territory. So it's going to reduce costly conflicts. And then also, I mentioned before how bulls will sometimes gather together in groups, like you said, the six-pack. Uh-huh. For warmth, if some of them want to be active at a certain time and others want to sleep at a certain time, that's not going to be very conducive to, to group warming. But if they're all kind of on the same cycle, right. then... Then they can become that six-piece chicken. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Sponsored by McDonald's. <laughs> and that kind of led me to another study because I'm thinking, you know, how do these how do these researchers find these groups of animals? In the, the study that I mentioned, they actually used pieces of metal that they laid down under the snow and they would pick them up and check the animals now and then. But I found another study from 2015 that actually had cameras, camera trap down in the subnivian zone. So they, they put a camera that it's attached facing downward from the ceiling of a box. And it's basically designed to function as a snow-free tunnel. And they placed nine traps in a place where snow cover lasted for six months. And the, the traps were so successful that 80% of the pictures had small mammals in them. Wow. So only 6% of the photographs appeared empty. The one thing that I couldn't find is it said 6% of the photographs appeared empty or were of poor quality, whereas about 80% were of small mammals. And the remaining were of invertebrates and birds. Oh. And I'm like, birds? Wait a minute, there were birds in the subnivian zone? Oh, no. Isn't, isn't this that old... Remember how before people knew about bird migration? Oh, yeah. They thought the birds went underground sw- or something? They thought or? the swallows went underwater. <laughs> <laughs> that they, they hibernated? They were right the whole time. <laughs> Not underwater. <laughs> under, the, under the snow, but, which is frozen water. Yeah. <laughs> but the study didn't give like more information about it. I actually emailed one of the authors to say, you know, what? can you give me more context here? What kind of birds were they and, and what were they doing down there? So I was wondering if he's just referring to maybe a time when an owl burst through the snow and maybe activated the trap i don't know i could kind of see like a robin or something hopping down there to see <laughs> if there's invertebrates and stuff down there sure. maybe a bird would hop down there if it's chickadees saw it. are bold maybe. yeah they like to i mean chickadees hang out inside of the hollowed out areas of trees and yeah. stuff so why not hollowed out areas of snow that's all <laughs> all right what else do you have so i looked at what affects the subnivian climate and if there's a couple things and this is this is pretty quick um, you have canopy cover ground vegetation and wind speed all of those affect the conditions inside the subnivian zone. Um, wooded areas tend to have warmer subnivian zones, uh, and in some cases, it's warmer by like seven to ten degrees, Holy almost cow. eleven degrees. Yeah, and, that's huge. Right, compared to open habitats. Yeah. So the difference between an open habitat and a, and a and a wooded area. So what the cover does is it actually decreases solar radiation. So I think that keeps the snow a little bit colder. And it ends up, and it also decreases the wind speed that's on the snowpack. Okay. And for some reason or another, the wind, I'm trying to think of the wind speed, why that, why that, well, that would cool it, right? So no, yeah. there's no stagnant air It'd over it. would be drawing it. heat away. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. the snow itself on the top would be staying colder. Yeah. But it's not always the case because dense canopy cover can actually intercept and sublimate up to 40% of the snowfall. Whoa. So if you have really dense canopy cover like in an evergreen forest yeah that's yeah. that's when you may have uh, that type of problem yeah when well when you mentioned evergreen forests before i was thinking you know man average snowpack i would imagine would be less dense 
and less plentiful in an evergreen forest rather than a deciduous forest. Right. Well, I'll, I'll get to that a little bit. Given similar so, latitudes and, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, and then to go along with that, where canopy cover is variable, the subnivian zone can be a mosaic of temperatures. And then where deciduous forests are usually the warmer or the warmest out of all of them, open areas like prairies are actually the most variable. So you'll get not only the warmest temperatures, but you also get the coldest temperatures. And it's just it's a very wide-ranging wide-ranging habitat for temperatures within the subnivian zone. So ground vegetation is similar to canopy cover in that regard, where when there isn't ground vegetation, you have very extreme minimum and maximum temperatures, and those extremes kind of pull in as you get more ground cover. So the more ground cover, the better for the subnivian zone. Yeah, so it's similar. Yeah, yeah, so it's so you can you can think about ground cover and canopy cover similarly in that regard. Mm-hmm. So th- there was this one interesting study that I read about that they simulated global warming. They had these natural areas, and then they had these areas that they had like little greenhouses around, and they increased that temperature by nine degrees Fahrenheit. And what they found was that the deciduous and prairie habitats had the most variation inside these simulated global warming environments. And what's the variation in temperature? Yeah, the most variation in temperature, okay. uh, in subnivian temperature. The deciduous forest subnivium it was the most affected. It had the lowest mean subnivian temperatures, whereas the prairie had the highest subnivian temperatures than both the deciduous and the conifer forest habitats. So even with that high variation, the prairie reached warm, stable, subnivian zone temperatures much earlier in the winter season than the other two cover types, and it also showed a more rapid increase in temperature with the onset of spring. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, but, but regardless of these relative results, it's still important to remember that the warmer air temperatures, in all cases, led to colder subnivian temperatures. And the higher temperatures increased the rate of snowmelt, uh, resulting in thinner, denser snow cover with reduced insulative capacity. Mm. So, you have thin, you have dense. That's not good. You sure. want you want not dense and you want thick. If you're a vole, head to the prairie if you can, but it's still not going to be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be very variable. Even though their average is a bit higher, it's still pretty variable. So, how many times do you, you get lucky? How many times do you think we've said the word subnivian in this episode? <laughs> I don't know, but I keep switching between subnivium and subnivian zone. <laughs> We need to come up with a cool uh, shorthand like the sub-Z or the... Uh, Sub-Z. <laughs> the SNZ. Okay. Do, do you have another study? I have one more. And I same here. Yeah. So I love the title of this one. When prey provide more than food. Oh, boy. Yeah. So this is from 2015 in Mammal Research. Tell me this is a Star Wars thing where another animal just sleeps inside of another one. <laughs> like Ooh. Luke on Hoth. <laughs> not quite. Oh, not like that. <laughs> I want to include this study because it gives people a a good idea of the the diversity of animals that utilize it. So this study looked at predators and kind of their relationships with their prey using the subnivian zone. They found 17 species of carnivores were exploiting at least 23 species of herbivores as food. Um, So that's just looking at carnivores and herbivores. They found that of those uh, 17 species of carnivores, 76% of them were in the mustelid family. Okay. All right. So, I mean, that's a lot. Three out of four of them. And then there were seven, several small species of canids. And then... Uh, so, dogs. And a few herpistids. Okay. Herpistids are going to be herps, so reptiles and amphibians. Reptiles and amphibians. Yeah. So, those that eat reptiles and amphibians. They said the weight-predator-prey ratio was average 10 to 1. So, predators were about 10 times as big. Okay. Um, and that's why they figured the long and thin weasel family 
uh, were the ones that commonly ex exploit the habitat. So it said a number of predators appropriate the refugia of their key prey species during the winter uh, when their prey occupies thermally secure sites. So the weasels go down in there, they eat the occupants, and then they're like, ooh, this is nice. I'm going to live here. <laughs> so they're basically saying predators that depend on prey as food and as they depend on them for shelter, their fates are linked just between these few key species, and they may be particularly vulnerable to changes in climate that affect the subnivian habitat. Right, yeah. right. I like that. It's kind of, um, oh, what, what do you call it in a forest? Um, succession. You know, it's kind of like uh, the weasels are succeeding the, uh, <laughs> it's mammal succession. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. They get the habitat. Yep. All right, so that's the last study that I had. Okay, so the last thing I, I mean, I'm saving the best for last, let's yeah. face it. So the last thing I want to talk about is plants. So, like I said before, plants spend the winter as seeds, rootstock, or uh, or they, they just remain evergreen, and they stay in exactly what we've been talking about the whole episode, the productive um, subnivian zone. So the plants that are in that area, they're avoiding desiccation inside this relatively moist, warm microclimate. Right. i, I got to just jump in here. Yeah, go ahead. Because... You know, the, the more I've learned about winter habitat, you know, over the years, the more I've come to see the winter landscape is really a desert landscape. Oh, that's what it seems like, yeah, I think. Yeah, because there's a lot of water there, but it's all locked up in the snow and the ice. So I like how you said that the seeds were avoiding desiccation, because if they were up on the surface of the snow, you know, forget right. it. They're going to be dried out. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not just the seeds avoiding desiccation. Like the plants themselves yeah. that are in the subnivian zone, yeah. they're avoiding desiccation as well. Uh, because the, the subnivian zone is relatively moist and warm. Yeah. And so when you have a well-structured subnivian zone, so preferably one that's, like we said earlier, maybe as deep as a foot and a half or bigger, it accelerates spring plant growth. And like Bill was saying earlier, the subnivian zone can get pretty deep, so there's not really much light getting through. But early on in the season and, and in the later parts of the season, there is some light getting through, oh, yeah. and plants can even plants can photosynthesize in the subnivian zone. Oh, wow. So... Uh, like you were saying before, with the carbon dioxide building up and all that, there is elevated carbon dioxide concentrations within the subnivian zone. And sometimes it can actually be a lot of carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. maybe depending on if an animal has an air tunnel, you know, in the right spot or not. Sure. The soil type. Uh, so there can be a lot of photosynthesis happening down there. I say a lot, but relative to maybe what you would think, I yeah, should say. Yeah, during the winter time. Right, yeah. right. So, uh, again, I'm going to be a downer. So, with decreasing snowpack, um, you have... So, I'm, I'm jumping from, like, evergreen small shrubs, like, underneath underneath the subnivian zone, and I'm going to bigger species now. So, with decreasing snowpack, there is a chance for injury to occur to plants as well. So, when you think about roots, where are the roots, Bill? <laughs> Down in the soil. Right. And uh, and when you have freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw, you Unless get... Unless it's epiphytic. Sure. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. No! <laughs> <laughs> I've been outgunned. <laughs> Sorry. Not so, in the soil, like I was Steve. saying, there's this freeze thaw that's happening in, this, in the soils, and when you have this soil frost heaving, where the soil is literally lifted from the from the water freezing and expanding, and ice spikes are forming. No. <laughs> no. Shout uh, out to episode 14. <laughs> so when you have this soil frost heaving. By the way, I doubt I doubt any spikes would form. <laughs> so, sorry, for the third time. So when you have soil frost heaving, you could actually end up damaging many of the fine roots that are attached to, like, the main root of okay. a plant. And that decreases the ability for the plant to absorb water and nutrients. So if you're having your roots damaged because of a lack of a subnivian zone, 
you know, that's that's going to be bad news for a lot of plants too, because yeah. every plant needs the soil. <laughs> well, nearly every plant needs the soil. So. <laughs> and I just thought that was fascinating. How I think the first thing you think about is the animals, yeah. but I think it's really important, you know, when you have to think about what the animals are eating, right? Or what the things the animals are eating are eating. Are eating, yeah. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah, right. <laughs> Plants are the power base, right? They are. Yeah. What a great <laughs> note to go out on. <laughs> all right, so one last thing I, I think is a good thing to wrap up with is I want to make a recommendation. Since this is going to be a winter episode, we're talking about a, a winter habitat here, the Subnivian Zone. Mm-hmm. One of the books that I've turned to a lot in the winter time, and, and I bet you have too, it was just this gold mine when I discovered it. it was uh, Stokes's Guide to Winter. Oh, no, I don't have it. From the Field Guide series, the Stokes Guides? Okay. You, you don't have it? I don't have oh the my Stokes gosh. Guide. Oh, yeah, you got to check it out. So, I think I, the only Stokes Guide I have is, I think, is like advanced birding or something. The winter one, it's not really an identification guide. It covers plants. It covers mammals. It covers birds, birds' nests. Like, it talks about the remnants of plants you're going to find and what they likely are. It has one of the best but all too brief accounts of winter galls that you're going to find and their life histories you know i was just thinking about ball galls the other day (laughs) (laughs) i bet you were (laughs) fooled again (laughs) but it just it covers such a variety of topics and it covers them well it hasn't been updated in in decades i don't think so some of the the species names are are outdated but the general information is still there so uh, if you're just interested in a great general guide to winter check out the stokes's guide to winter that's great i think i'm going to check it out okay so as always i want to thank our patrons so thank you to ken scott molly rob Alyssa, dave kimberly lee and our two new patrons paul and chimera Awesome Love that name. name. <laughs> Paul, right? <laughs> <laughs> Love that name, Paul. And Ch- that's how they signed on as, as Chimera? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll never know who the person really is. <laughs> so if, if you're new to the podcast, we should point out that those patrons um, have signed up to support us through Patreon.com. Mm-hmm. So they're providing donations to us to, to help make the podcast better. We're going to be using those donations to uh, support our website and also eventually to buy better equipment. Mm-hmm. And if people want to join that growing list, that elite group of Patreon supporters, where do they go, Steve? They can go to patreon.com forward slash the field guides. And if you're interested in telling us what you think about our episodes, uh, we encourage everyone to check out iTunes. Please leave us a review. We're getting close to the goal of, what did we say, 25? We want 25. That's our arbitrary goal. That's right. Yeah. And we said if, if when we get to 25 reviews, we'll do something special. We don't know what that is yet. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of specials, one thing that I do want to mention is that right now, I think right now I'm editing three bonus episodes and I guess this regularly scheduled episode. So you guys are going to be getting a bit of bonus content coming real soon. I think, I think January, I'd like to get all four of these episodes Ooh. out. So the regular episode... And the other three bonus episodes. You're going to spoil people, Steve. Maybe. (laughs) Or maybe I'll just kill myself in the process of trying to get this done. I can do some editing if you need me to. I'll I'll give a little spoiler alert. (laughs) One of the episodes is our Christmas bird count. And I made the grave error of basically recording everything. It's about four hours and 50 minutes of audio to go through. (laughs) I made it through the first 30 minutes, and I got it. I whittled it down to about four to five minutes. Right. So I think if at, at that pace, it could be maybe like a 40 episode or a 40 minute episode, right. right? So so guys, look forward to that. And then we have some cool other adventures. Um, I have an adventure 
that we're going to post with Matt from, from Indefensive Plants yeah. and Sarah from Midwestern Explorer. Yeah. And also another one, just a bonus episode from when Bill, Rich, and I were up in Algonquin. Yeah, last year. Yeah. yeah. We have so... We, Rich and I recorded so much on that trip, and we didn't use any of it. And it tells a great story on its own. We saw a lot of cool stuff, but I don't want to give much more away. So. All right. That sounds good. Since I wasn't part of some of those adventures, I'm looking forward to those as well. <laughs> All right. We want to remind everyone to please check out our website for the works cited for this episode and for any other notes that come up. Um, that's thefieldguidespodcast.com. You can always email us to thefieldguides at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Always check us out on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. And on Twitter, at Field Guides Pod. And don't forget, if you like what we're doing, or if, or if you want to give us any type of feedback, please come to iTunes and yes. give us a nice review there. Because that does help make the podcast more visible. Mm-hmm. And if you do have a criticism, please make it constructive and let us know how <laughs> we can make the podcast better. Right. <laughs> and we do appreciate uh, the star reviews, but uh, doing a written-out review is, is even better. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts to all the people that have left reviews, taken the time to do that. The patrons, once again, as always, thank you so much for that great show of support. It means a lot to Steve and I. Yeah, Thanks definitely. so much. And folks, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. We'll see you in January again. <laughs> <laughs>